cette nuit-là Régnait dans ma chambre une chaleur insoutenable Comment dire une sorte d'atmosphère désagréable Ne m'empêchant de m'endormir Alright, now we're calling Olivia Knox Hello Hello, kind sir, how are you Oh, you know, living the dream <laughs> As always then Exactly <laughs> Thanks for agreeing to do this. Of course, my pleasure. One of the urgent requests by the listenership was to have you speak some French. Bon, ben d'accord, ben à ce moment je vais te parler un peu français. Euh, je suis moitié français, moitié américain. Ma mère était d'un petit village entre Nice et Monaco. Et mon père est du Connecticut. Donc voilà. Et voilà, c'était déjà ça, hein. C'est <laughs> parfait ce français. Ben, J'ai grandi euh, dans le Vermont et à Paris, et ma mère est pas française, on parlait français à la maison. Et tu as, tu as toujours parlé français avec ta mère Oui, c'est ma, ma première langue. Hein, ah. Ce n'est plus, plus ma langue dominante. Mais c'était ma première langue et euh, j'ai toujours parlé français avec ma mère. Tu parles français avec ton fils J'essaye, j'essaye. Mais <rire> le problème, c'est que. Hein. <rire> non, mais la, la règle, la règle, c'est que les enfants parlent la langue de leurs de leur camarades, pas ouais. celle de leurs parents. C'est vrai. Donc moi, moi, ce qui m'a beaucoup aidé, c'était de faire mon, faire beaucoup de mon élémentaire euh, à Paris. On va parler un peu hein, de, de Paris dans un tout ouais, petit très peu. Très bien. Ok, superbe. Um, so that was already some French for you, but I also have a French intro because you already know the man that we're about to talk to. <laughs> so uh, this time we're going to do a French intro. Mesdames et messieurs, c'est mon honneur et mon grand plaisir de vous présenter le bonhomme avec la barbe, votre paramour intellectuel, le correspondant le plus puissant, Olivier Knox. Bienvenue au Pooligans Podcast. <laughs> Merci, tout le plaisir est pour moi. <laughs> and that was it, I think, for the French. Otherwise, we're going to lose all of these listeners to their international ennui. Uh, <laughs> He is, of course, as you know, Olivier Knox, Sirius XM, The Big Picture, where he is now. He came to The Big Picture from Yahoo News, where you probably also heard him on Sirius XM for, for quite a while. And previous to that, 15 years at Agence France Presse. That's exactly right. Okay, so I got the right phone number, so that's good. <laughs> uh, Olivier, tell us a little bit. How did you choose journalism as a profession? A, a young, strapping man in France, able to speak both English and French, so with all the benefits... And you choose journalism of all the possible avenues. How did that happen? Well, I could be prosaic and misleading and tell you that growing up half in Paris and half in Vermont, um, I, uh, I fell into the role of explaining America to my French friends and the world to my American friends. The reality, though, the reality, though, is uh, it was late in the second year of my graduate school program. Graduation sort of looming. And my favorite professor took a bunch of her favorite students out for beers and she went around the table and said, okay, you're going to do this in life. You're going to do this in life. And she got to me and she said, now, Olivier, the question for you is where you're going to be a journalist. And all my friends hmm. just said, oh yes, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> and I'd, I'd been working for the, the, the correspondent in DC of Le Figaro, one of the big French papers. And, um, but I was just doing it for the money. And I thought, you know, I, yeah, I could, I could do this. So I sent out a bunch of resumes, and the first uh, response I got was from Agence France Presse, the French international French news agency, um, to work for their. Uh, basically, I, I went to work for their English service in July of 1996, and uh, well, stuck with it. That's the first time I believe that I heard somebody say he only did journalism for the money. Oh yeah, no, when I, I was in grad, <laughs> you know, I was in grad, I was in grad school, and this guy wanted a, uh, this guy wanted an assistant. Mm. I was I was uniquely uniquely suited to do that. Um, so I, I enjoyed it, but I didn't really think of it, you know, in terms of a career. How do you feel it was like growing up in Paris? I mean, you, you grew up part and part, but you did actually go to school in, in France for quite a while, didn't you? Yeah, a lot of my elementary was done in France um, at, a, at a school right on the, on the edge of, right in the Montparnasse neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, I did uh, nursery school, kindergarten, uh, third, fourth and fifth grade and sophomore year in high school all of that in Paris. Um, and, um, well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It was a study in contrast, obviously, between Paris and Middlebury, Vermont. Yeah, let's talk about that, because this is something we share, right? I grew up in Switzerland, so I went to, I went to school in Switzerland, not too far from the French and the German border. Um, you grew up in Paris. What do you feel the differences were? It is a rush in America to point out the poor education, the lack of education, the lack of international outlook that students seem to have when they come out of school where, where America is just the navel of the world. Do you feel that going to school in Paris and, and going through that formative experience had a, how would you contrast it with the American experience? Well, you know, um, that's an interesting criticism. What I would tell you is one of the really 
one of the really stark differences between the two systems is, is the French system puts a premium on recitation, on, on ingesting information and then producing it on demand. And the American system puts more of a premium on ingesting the information and coming to your own conclusions, making your own decisions and the rest of it. One of the things that always stuns my, my French friends when they encounter it is the degree to which, for example, American college students are running their lives. They are running their clubs, they are budgeting, they are hiring, they are firing. Um, and, and that always surprises them. Uh, French, French students don't typically do that. Uh, at, the, at, the, at the grade school level, what always struck me was, again, the sort of the, the, the teacher as uh, authority figure in the classroom overseeing this process of recitation in France and the teacher as facilitator in the American, in the American system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, 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 I don't want to put one above the other. In fact, I wish I could sort of meld them into, into one system, which uh, in some ways the American university system does. Um, but both of these things have, uh, have strengths. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really important observation because having, you know, you have, I think our sons are roughly almost the same age. My daughter's a little bit older. And it was fascinating to me coming from that educational background to watch how school worked here at that level. And it was it was pretty eye-opening. And I think it's Europeans are always very quick to dismiss American schooling. But like you're saying, I think the two blended actually will probably be an ideal form of schooling. Yes, I think, I think that's right. And I, I don't know how, to, you know, I'm not an education expert, so I don't know if I'm overlooking some major structural flaws here. But it, <laughs> it, would, be, it would be nice to see... It would be nice to see uh, to see accommodation to do, and and of course the other thing is that you know in in France education is much more standardized, whereas in the United States mm-hmm. you have um, you have at least fifty systems, uh, fifty one I guess, or more <laughs> if you're more more if you're counting territories. But so because of the local control in the United States, it's it's a little harder to to generalize about the qualities, attributes, or defects of the uh, of the American system. That's true. Do you go back to Paris frequently? Well, my uh, my younger brother, let's call him the smart one, um, lives over there. <laughs> um, so we go over there every couple of years uh, to see him and his wife and my two nephews. And um, uh, so we've 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 tried to we've tried to keep a keep a toehold there. My son is actually very aware of his French heritage, and uh, and when it came time to choose whether he wanted to study French or Spanish in, in school, he opted for French, and said it's you know because he because he felt. Uh, this this cultural affinity for for France, so um, it's it's still very much a part of my life. How do you feel France has changed? Fran- Paris, especially, has really gone through a lot in the past, let's say, ten years, and had to deal with the kind of terrorism that previously it had not experienced to that degree. Well, in France, in France, I mean, uh, in France, actually, there was a lot of uh, counterterrorism stuff when I was growing up. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the, I mean, there were plots like the 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 the, the uh, in ninety. Five, I want to say there was that jet um, that was hijacked and it, it ended up at the Marseille airport and uh, and it was stormed by the French special cops. Um, and apparently the plot had been to fly it into either the Eiffel Tower or the Montparnasse Tower in Paris. But I remember I mean, I remember pretty tough security in, in France in, uh, in 85, 86. Um, some of the biggest changes, uh, one. So my sixth grade. So in sixth grade is when you pick a foreign language. Uh, in the in the French system, um, my my year was the first year I believe that more kids picked English than German. And one of the consequences is if you go to Paris, um, you will find that English is much more spoken by the shopkeepers and and the average person than it used to be. So that's a fairly significant change. Another one that I've uh, that I've noticed is the the idea of a service culture has taken a bit more root. You know, the, the famous, famously, the stereotypically, stereotypically, and ter- yeah. terrible, right, right, it's a stereotype, right? Yeah. Um, that was always, that was always a bit, uh, that was always a bit of an exaggeration. Um, but um, uh, that's changed a lot as well. Um, there have been other changes, uh, you know, the, um, the, 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 the expansion of the high-speed train has changed France. I mean, I have friends who commute into Paris from what used to be two hours away, um, and that's made some changes, some demographic changes. Um, so it's 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 changed a lot in my 
not quite 50 years on the planet. Do you think for the better or for worse, or is it just change, period? Um, I, I'm going to go with I'm going to go with just change. I think. I mean, um, you know, France has, has had some very public struggles with. Uh, uh, well, there been a lot of like there was an anti-racism movement when I was in high school. Um, you've seen uh, feminist movements, and you've seen all these other waves of movements, mm -hmm. um, which is how which is how France changes. France, a lot of the time, does not like incremental changes. They like people in the streets changes. Um, and right now, you know, there's this unsettling uh, rise uh, in anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic incidents in France. Um, <clears throat> so I'm just going to say change because I don't want to, you know, I don't necessarily want to, if I say positive, people will find negative. If I say negative, people will find positive. So, <laughs> so we'll just go for change that's exactly right Come, so coming out of being being a, a new journalist coming into that profession what do you think makes a great journalist in your opinion why do you think that teacher that day immediately said for you it's really only a question where you're going to be a journalist you know i never asked her so i don't know but i think mm. that, uh, that 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 you know 20 not quite 23 years later i would say that um a good journalist has to be willing to utter a phrase that is almost banned in Washington, D.C., which is, I don't know. Um, and has to be willing to accept that they are a sort of, they're a perpetual student, that whatever specialization they acquire doesn't necessarily make them an expert, and that they have to be willing to say, I don't know how to, I don't know what the answer to this question is, but I know how to get the answer. And, um, I've, I've tried to apply this uh, I don't know policy to my own reporting, you know, just sort of saying, gosh, you know, I, I could I could, sh of course, shoot my mouth off or tweet or whatever. But mm -hmm. uh, instead of instead of serving up a hot take, I think my listeners and previously my readers would be better served if I if I went digging. You know, I did a series of pieces at Yahoo News um, that were very much about my curiosity about things. So what happens when the president stays at a hotel? What's in the president's pockets? How does the president's uh, non-public schedule get put together? Um, how do American place name uh, places get their names? That was a really good one. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's that's a lot of that's a lot of the fun of journalism is knowing that you don't know and then going out and finding the answer and sharing that with your with your uh, with your audience. Speaking of what makes a great journalist, uh, when did you first become aware of one Julie Mason? <laughs> um, so Julie and I got to be friends. Uh, covering the uh, George W. Bush White House and making frequent trips to Crawford, Texas. Mm. Uh, she was working for she was working for the Houston Chronicle at the time, um, and that's really where we uh, where we found we had sort of similar dark senses of humor, um, and uh, and and a fondness for a certain era of music, um, and uh, and so we really bonded like we really bonded that way. I mean. The, The thing about tr the thing this used to be the case, it's much less the case now, but it used to be that you would get sort of a horde of traveling reporters wherever the president went. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you spend 24 hours with someone, you get to know whether you want to hang out with them outside of work. Right. <laughs> Pretty quickly. Yep. You know, like those 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 long those long bus rides will really, really teach you what quirks you're willing to put up with. Um, and uh, and so Jules and I just sort of uh, got to be friends and and. Um, you know, she was at the Chronicle, I was at AFP and, and sort of bonded over, over these, uh, over these long trips. And, um, I ended up when she was doing a blog called Beltway Confidential and was traveling a lot less, I used to file to her from, um, from various foreign destinations. So I filed to her from, uh, Rwanda, from Tanzania, from Sydney, Australia. I don't know if you could still find those, but basically I, I, I sent these, uh, first person travel logs um to her uh obviously we, we kept in touch through her, her days at, at, at politico and then finally at sirius xm so i don't i don't really want to put a date on it but it's we've known each other a long time yeah it's 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 been a moment i believe she she yesterday described you quite colorfully as a deeply sarcastic pool writer with lots of coded words ah uh, that's fair and i took i took note at the time yesterday to make sure to ask you what are those coded words that she's referring to I find that fascinating. <laughs> um, I think <clears throat> I think you'd have to ask her for a very precise answer to this, but <laughs> but let's just say I choose I choose my words carefully. Um, 
you know, my uh, the, the the pool report that I wrote that's most easily accessible is a February 2012 pool report um, on uh, on uh, Barack Obama's St. Patrick's Day outing to a local bar. Um, I published it on Yahoo News, so you can still find it out there. But you'll see the sorts of details that that I highlight on a, on, on a on a trip like that. Okay, so that is a, a challenge to all pooligans. Find the coded words in that particular pool report. Exactly. That that should be fun. So you were also infamously there for actually quite a, quite a few amazing events, but you were there for the for the shoe throw. I was. Yeah. I mean, if you if you track my career, I'm like the, the Dr. Kevorkian of news because I go to Congress and impeachment happens. I go to the, I go to the Al Gore presidential <laughs> campaign. The recount happens. I go to the White House. 9-11 happens. Iraq happens. The, the, the economic crisis happens. You know, uh, but uh, yeah, I was there in uh, in 2008 um, when um, President Bush was doing his sort of final um, doing a final uh, uh, spin to Iraq and Afghanistan. And in Iraq, in Iraq, he did this press conference with the prime minister at the time, Nur al-Maliki. Mm -hmm. And we filed in and the, the Iraqi press was there. And um, this uh, press conference started happening relatively normally. And all of a sudden, a small black object sailed over my head. Um, and, and over the president's head. And, and, and our first thought of on the American side was, is this the kind of blank object that goes boom? Mm -hmm. um, and we realized it was a shoe. And then uh, there was sort of a kerfuffle behind me. And then a second shoe sailed overhead. And this one, the president actually ducked. Um, and then uh, he was seized upon by a combination of Iraqi reporters and Iraqi security. And they, um, they beat the crap out of him. And there was blood on the blood on the carpet afterwards. Um, one thing you can't one thing you can't tell from video of the event um, is that we could hear him moaning in pain behind a closed door throughout the press conference, no which way. was a very it was a very unsettling experience. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was that was one of the crazier one of the crazier moments I saw in the, on that trip. The other interesting moment, and it's of course lost because of the shoe throwing uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, the President Bush met with uh, Hamid Karzai, the Afghan president, um, someone of whom Julie is very fond. Very fond. And and Karzai said in what we what made us sort of laugh nervously, but he said that he would never let the Americans leave until Afghanistan had sucked all the billions of dollars it could uh, <laughs> out of the United States. Um, and we all laughed nervously, you know, but, but when we talked to U.S. officials later, they were like, yeah, that was a little... <laughs> A little on the nose. How else are you going to get these magnificent capes? Yes, exactly. Can I ask you something? You frequently, and you did that at Yahoo too. When you do your read-in um, of your program, you and you mention your title, you frequently immediately post a disclaimer that these titles don't really mean that much and, and then go on to explain what it may mean. I just I just feel that, that Chief Washington Correspondent is so pompous. And so and so totally bereft of actual information um, that I, I feel like I should flesh it out. And one of the things I do on my show is I explain, you know, the range of things that I cover. Um, but it's I just I don't I don't know that anyone goes into print journalism for the titles. And I certainly didn't. And uh, so so that's why I do that. I don't it's not that meaningful. You know, it's like a you know, a senior White House correspondent versus a chief White House correspondent. I just don't know that it adds anything for the listener. You know, what the listener should know is that since July of 1996, I've covered American politics and policy, uh, mostly foreign policy, although sometimes domestic as well. And that that's what I'm bringing to the table, not some, you know, inflated title. When I first found your your Yahoo program, which already did a lot of the things that your current program is doing, even though your current program has taken that, I think, to a different level even, is coming from Europe, I was used to international news. I was not used to our news programs growing up were not news programs mainly focused on Switzerland. First of all, there was not enough news. And second of all, nobody gave a shit. And <laughs> so the, the, the news were always international. And that is something that when I moved to Los Angeles in 92, I quickly realized was an entirely different perspective over here. And I think in your career, you've, you've highlighted, gone, seen, filed from, reported on 
many of the places that in European coverage, as I knew it, represented that more. Has that always been an easy sell in America? I mean, obviously, papers need a, an international and foreign correspondent. That's not really a question. But how do editors in America react to, to the kinds of topics and things that you want to cover? Uh, well, I'm, I'm lucky in that both at Yahoo and at Sirius, I've had near total freedom to pursue stories that I'm interested in. Um, you know, a, a great editor is an editor who says, you know, oh, you're interested in that. Okay, off you go. And then if you come back and say, it turns out there was no story there, they don't get mad. Um, it's, it's not always an easy sell. I mean, I think I think it's the easiest thing in the world in American journalism is to talk to other American journalists. And you see it on Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. Twitter is where we all gather to talk and hash things out. And, you know, it's where sort of the pack mentality starts out. And it can be a, it can be an enormously powerful tool and rather it is an enormously powerful tool. But it's really easy just to fall into this sort of incestuous circle of conversation inside the Beltway, inside the Acela Corridor, coastal elites, whatever you want to call it. And so... Part of the part of my eagerness to say I don't know and then try to remedy that is um, stems in part from the fact that I've kept some roots in, in Vermont. Um, Lord knows when I was 18, I was in a rush to get out. But at, at 48, um, I, I've come to recognize the important part that it played in my in, in, in shaping who I am today. And so I follow the news from Vermont as much as I can. Um, I, uh, I talk to my friends in Vermont, usually via Facebook Messenger. Um, but I, I do that as much as I can. And um, it's it's helped me to realize how many local and regional stories are actually just slightly smaller national stories. You know, it's it's a local paper, a regional paper that broke that crazy story about the Saudi government allegedly helping mm -hmm. some of its citizens flee American justice. Right. After rape allegations. Right. That, that yeah. story. Yeah. You know, the Miami Herald just this, over the last six months has done some incredible work on accused pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so realizing and Ben Conark in Florida has done some great stuff on the Florida correctional system, for example. Uh, Laura Hayes has written great things for the Washington City paper about the food industry and its problems with drugs and sexual harassment. And, and the thing about that is all of these stories really are. Uh, national stories in, in, in various ways because they're reproducible everywhere, essentially. And so what I wanted to do was take this really good reporting uh, on the ground in, in instead of parachuting in, these are people who live this, live this experience. And I wanted to bring them on the radio show because one, I think it's very compelling radio. And two, you know, it, it, it helps to flesh out the world in which we live in a way that uh, the covering every last burp and fart in the Mueller investigation, I don't think is helpful. Especially since most of it is really a guessing game by people whose guesses are not really much more informed than the person who spoke 20 minutes previous. Right, that's right. Uh, speaking of the Mueller investigation, <laughs> no, we're actually, we're not going to go there. We're, we're not going to do we're not going to do Mueller stuff. Um, <laughs> okay. What I what I would love to find out, though, from you is there. I, I think there was at some point a recognition in America that nationalism was actually a thing. It seemed that that realization came relatively late. It seemed that the GOP itself, uh, the Democrats, and also I think a majority of journalists were taken aback when it became clear that there was a maybe a 30% or 35% number of Americans who really were deeply interested for various reasons in a form of American nationalism. Was that something that I just did not look into and did not see? Or is it correct to say that that at the time just seemed to be overlooked even by the people who really should have known and would have had a vested interest in knowing well i think i think that that it it fell from sight a little bit with the end of the cold war mm -hmm. and sort of not an overarching challenge to american authority worldwide and so all of a sudden it became a little less important patriotism was still fine everyone flew flags on on july 4th but maybe you know maybe it was less do or die than during the cold war uh 9 11 uh changed some of that you know i, I like to tell people that prior to 9 11 the places i saw the place i saw the most american flags was normandy mm -hmm. um where the the french folks there fly a lot of them um but uh after 9-11, it wasn't so much a nationalism as a, as a patriotism. And then with the, with these shocks to the system, like the Iraq war or the economic crisis, 
uh, adding adding those on top of decades of wage stagnation for uh, lower income Americans and um, you know the perception that everything's out of control. Um, it was the, the time was ripe. I won't tell you that I predicted it because I didn't. Um, but but looking back, I would say that there are these you know there are these moments like the end of the Cold War where you know you you take your foot off the gas. There's no longer this huge external threat, and therefore your identity is maybe not quite as bound up in that kind of uh, nationalism or populism. I found it actually surprising that it took as long as it did to take hold in America, having seen it in Europe for. The, the better part of the previous, what, 10 or 15 years, I, I was very aware of it in Switzerland because that really became a thing in, in Switzerland, including some fairly rampant racism, um, racism against Muslims, uh, anti-Semitism. And I think it was, of course, with Le Pen, similarly yep. happened in France, happened in Italy, uh, with Ando Berlusconi to a certain degree. But there never seemed to have been a supposition that any of that could come to or could take hold in America. And interestingly, the people who suspected that least seem to have been the Europeans themselves. Yeah, I think that's right. I would like to see, you know, the, the, the various embassies here have political sections that try to predict mm -hmm. what's going to happen in America. And I would love to know to what degree they predicted um, the, the rise of Donald Trump. And I don't know that they did, because I think most of us were caught by surprise. In fact, the Trump campaign was caught by surprise because the Friday before Election Day, they briefed reporters and said they had no better than a one in five chance of winning. Um, so so I, I don't I, I don't know. I, I think I think I, I think it caught a lot of people by surprise. Yes. Uh, but I think the roots were always the roots were always sort of there. I mean, you know, one of the things that I hear from the uh, from the Obama folks, it's really pretty interesting is they talk about how they regret not having taken tougher action against Wall Street. Hmm. And they talk about how there was this perception that he was going to come in and change the rules of the game. And maybe he didn't change them enough, or maybe he didn't let Americans know when he was changing them enough. Um, and I'm talking about the rules of the game, not like big legislation, but I'm talking about like changing it so that, you know, Wall Street doesn't get away with everything all the time. Um, and they talk about regretting not doing more on that score. And I've always thought that was kind of an interesting observation in terms of understanding the current moment. In what ways do you think that is that is currently playing out? Do you think that, that the, the lack of doing that, not having done that, fueled some of the anger on the right? Yes, yeah. yes. Look, go back and watch, go back and watch Donald Trump's speeches in 2015 and 2016. The, the, the fundamental pillars of the speech are, uh, you've been betrayed and I know who your real enemies are. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was basically like, look, the national security elites gave you 9-11 and Iraq, um, the financial elites gave you the meltdown. The cultural elites gave you this discourse that, de that devalues the things you care about. Um, it's, 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 I mean, it's really potent. And on some level, the elites have betrayed you. It has been a feature of American uh, discourse forever. Uh, now, I, I will say there are only two uh, messages in American politics. Change is scary and change is needed. And uh, it's obviously harder for the incumbent to do change is needed. Mm -hmm. But that's that's kind of what we had in, in 2016. And Americans said, no, no, change is needed. It's not scary. Yeah, so that is what I was going to ask you. That was actually going to be my, my next question. Do you think that in 2020, how is change is needed and change is scary going to play out? Because I, you can see right now, uh, the, the I think Trump's idea of how to make this work is let's be scary socialists over there yes yes right, right. and absolutely right and and on the on the democratic side it's no no do it is crazy we need change right so the democrats are going to try to basically carve out a third version of, of these two messages which is not changing is scary <laughs> that's that's really interesting yeah that's a very good point um and but but you're right i mean you know and and the thing about the thing about the place where we are now in the campaign is you forget that at the end of the day I mean, sure, there's a referendum element, but the, what the president's going to try to do is make this as much a choice election as possible, as opposed to a referendum on his presidency. And he's going to try to, you know, as, as you say, and you can already see it happening, right? The, the Democrats are open borders, abortion, mm -hmm. super fans who love immigrants and hate America. And um, so you can already see the themes. But um, but yeah, so the Democrats are going to try to do this. They still have to pick whether they want to do changes needed or not changing is scary. But I, I suspect you're going to get 
uh, not changing is scary. So that would mean not necessarily one of the more progressive candidates, but one of the more establishment candidates in Democratic. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think so, because one of the not changing is scary is climate change. Mm -hmm. Another not changing is scary is gun violence. Another not changing is scary is income and wealth inequality. So I, I, I think that I think that a uh, I think that a, one of the more progressive folks could absolutely do the not changing is scary message. How do you think that's going to play? Do you think that the Democrats' expectation that what happened in the midterms is replicable in a presidential election is a sensible assumption? Do you think that that is that that is a good indicator, or was that just really the first? reaction to sort of the, the pent-up anxiety that came out in those midterms and is that maybe not replicable in a larger uh, general election oh man i don't know the answer to that to be honest with you um oh now he's doing I mean, his thing now he's doing the i don't have the answer for that thing that makes a good journalist i don't i don't <laughs> but but i mean right but i don't think i serve i don't think i serve the the pool against audience well if i just I, I totally set, agree. A, set aside my qualms about my own lack of knowledge and just barrel forward with a, you know, an affirmative statement that might be completely wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think, I think I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, invoke discretion being the better part of valor. Okay. That, that, that is completely fair because I think the truth is nobody knows right now. The butterfly effect is now an almost a daily occurrence where Every day, there's some huge news that could change the entire picture on a whim. And I, I feel like that is new. I feel like over the past two years, that has become a feature of daily politics. Is that right? You know, I talked to a, I talked to a, a Republican consultant in, oh, I don't know, March or April of 2017. Mm -hmm. And he joked that the winning Democratic message in 2020 is, quote, I swear to God, there'll be days you, you forget I even exist. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And right now, that's hard to forget. And so, which leads us into one of your other current current occupations, which is being the current president of the White House Correspondents Association. So mm -hmm. you have that bird's eye view of the of the daily goings on. And ha but you've also covered White Houses for a long time. So how and you know, you're asked this question all the time. So I, I apologize, but it's it's, right. it's the lead in. How would you compare what's going on right now with what you've watched going on before and what is it like now all of a sudden having to having the responsibility to speak for the people that you used to be one of well um it i could tell you i mean one of the one of the i guess i'll joke that one of the good things about putting out statements criticizing this president and this white house is that it makes twitter unusable for about two days um, <laughs> Do, um what what is that like is there just an enormous amount of pushback uh, well, the first death threats of 2019 landed about 10 days ago. Um, wow, I'm it's, sorry. It's um, it's it's difficult because one of the problems that I have is that people don't actually know what the White House Correspondents Association does. Mm -hmm. So, so let's do that. The bulk, yeah. the bulk of my time is spent managing logistical matters. So it's uh, setting up pools, you know, the small groups of reporters who follow the president around, uh, or the vice president around, or other officials around, and report back to their colleagues. So I've had issues with, in the last month, with um, uh, fixing or upgrading the uh, vans that carry the press corps in the presidential motorcade. I've had to sort of figure out. Uh, we've had to we've had to figure out as an association figure out the hotels we're staying in in Hanoi. Um, we've talked about. I mean, it's all things like that. You know, we had a big long conversation that no one ever heard about about whether photographers could move to silent cameras in the Oval Office. And so it, it's it's we have a we have, a, I think, an important public messaging function. But but what I do the most work on is sort of the, what I would call the practical application of the First Amendment, mm -hmm. making sure that the men and women who cover the White House get what they need, are able to do their jobs. Now, sometimes that means um, criticizing the White House or the president publicly. Uh, the bulk of the time, it means, you know, having sort of passionate arguments privately. Um, one thing, one thing that's very uh, particular to this era is that this is a president who on the one hand loves the press and uh, takes questions all the time and, in, you know, brings us into meetings a lot. Um, and this is also a president who has called us the enemies of the people and fake news. And it's, it's so it's a really split, it's a real split personality. Um, the last, you know, the last statement I put out was about um, 
safety and security at at uh, at presidential rallies and saying that the president should make it clear to his supporters that um, violence against reporters and, and anyone else is is not to be tolerated. Um, so so it, it so it, it, but and these public statements, by the way, I mean, it's it's never easy. Not everyone thinks that the WHCA president should be doing that. Some of my members think I should just shut up and focus on the logistical stuff. Is that really there are members who 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 would be keen on you not putting out a statement when that happens? Absolutely. Huh. With, with what with what reason? Just because that's not something that's supposed to be litigated publicly? That I was not that I was not elected to be their spokesperson. That I was elected to manage this relationship and not be their spokesperson. So the idea of releasing those statements is that a more of more recent vintage, or is that something that has always? No, no, happened? we've we've always we've always done that. The, the, the people who don't right. think I should speak are a very small minority, but they exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's it's I don't know, it's about twenty hours a week probably of emails and phone calls and meetings trying to do trying to manage this relationship. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that I don't know, and I, I probably should find out, is I don't know uh, the, the extent to which the Justice Department is running leak investigations right now. One of the features of the Obama era was the surveillance of reporters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they spied on the Associated Press. They uh, they declared a, a Fox News reporter a, a criminal conspirator for doing his job. Um, they did all kinds of things. We actually had a very, despite what conservatives will tell you, the press corps had a very contentious relationship with the Obama White House. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so what I don't really know right now, um, uh, is to what degree the Trump administration is, you know, spying on reporters, et cetera, et cetera. I, I really don't know. And it's, and it's a very, very important question mark. Um, I, I mean, I've seen some reporting that there are a lot of leak investigations underway, but I haven't, I haven't sort of seen, you know, one of the people I would consider an authority on this um, weighing in with here's the exact state of play of these kinds of investigations. What do you think about Justice Thomas wanting to to relitigate New York Times versus Sullivan? Is that something that that concerns you as WHCA president? Yeah, of course it does. Of course that concerns. Well, it concerns me as a reporter. Never mind as the WHCA president. As a reporter, that's concerning. You know, the that that case was enormously important in terms of ensuring um, coverage of major social movements and upheaval and and rolling back libel law, you know, saying that, saying that, um, you know, public figures should get more protection from scrutiny, I think is not, that's not a remedy for anything except the discomfort of public figures. I find it fascinating that Justice Thomas of all justices would be the one suggesting that because that seems like an idea that could, in many ways, also backfire, particularly I mean, I guess it could backfire on both sides, but it's, it seems fraught, that particular idea, for many reasons. Yes, it does. Um, but remember, Donald Trump has floated this idea as well of sort of, of, of sort of either loosening or tightening, depending on your respective libel laws. Um, and uh, Justice Thomas's wife recently met with Donald Trump. And so what we don't know is whether that was a feature of the conversation. How could it not be, I guess? I mean, of course. <laughs> That's... I mean, yeah. right. This is kind of the thing, right? So that's a, another another imp, important and and uh, and concerning thread to watch. The headaches only grow bigger uh, as as one reads the news. Uh-huh. Doing the big picture has the show changed anything about about your thinking or about how you report news? Well, it's given me a platform for highlighting local and regional reporting, which is not something I could do before. Mm-hmm. So so sure, it, it, I would say it has reaffirmed my my fondness my my love for that kind of reporting. Um, but in terms of, uh, in terms of my news gathering, you know, the hardest thing, actually, I'll tell you this, the hardest thing in the transition from print to broadcast is knowing when to interrupt someone. And I still don't know. I still don't do it well. <laughs> as a, as a Frenchman, it's embarrassing, right? As a Frenchman, this is a culture that interrupts constantly as a Frenchman. It's embarrassing. I have to be very honest with you. I, I also don't do it on my podcast. Almost never or at least not not that I try to. And I know it's something that Julie frequently says about Chris Matthews. She loves about Chris Matthews that he redirects at the moment where he needs to redirect. But but I yeah, I, I feel for you in that respect. I also don't tend to interrupt. Right. I mean, it's hard. And it's, it's hard, you know, I mean, I've had some situations where like a sitting senator gets a date wrong and it's not meaningful, really. Mm-hmm. But if, if but if that date's going to come up again in conversation, I want to make sure we have the right date. Um. So, uh, but so I didn't interrupt her, but I, but I just restated the actual correct date of the event that she was describing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are other times when I've had to cut in, you know, where I've had to jump in and, and interrupt someone. I mean, one of my 
one of my absolute worst interviews on the show was with a DHS Department of Homeland Security spokeswoman who um, was going to talk about changes in, 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 in the way they apply asylum law. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, you know, well, let's let's take a step back. And uh, can you tell me can you can you explain what is asylum? And she said, well, I'll take a step back. And then she read a full page statement. Ooh. And she sounded like she was reading a full page statement. Encouraging. Um, and I, I just sort of I, I probably should have cut her off instead of letting her read the full page statement. But I was in shock that, that someone in communications would be so bad at their jobs. And she at the end of it, I, I said, OK, that's nice. Now, can you define <laughs> asylum for me? And the killer the killer thing was she couldn't. Um, and so so you, you had a sort of a, 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 a it was a lose lose. I didn't do my job well by letting her read the statement. She didn't do her job well by reading the statement and not being able to answer a basic question about it. I was actually afraid that when you said, OK, now could you define asylum? She read the statement again is what I was afraid that actually happened. <laughs> well, that that yeah, that's that's another potential danger. Yep. Yep. But you can usually hear, I mean, when I've got a when I've got a guest with whom I've got chemistry, you can usually hear it. And um, mm-hmm. Uh, oh, another thing I've learned is actually in studio is always better than on the, on the phone um, because you can sort of see the visual cues from someone who wants to add something or wants to you know, correct something or who's running out of time or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's been I mean, it's been almost it's been almost a year and I'm still very much learning. How's the board going? Are you doing any board yet? Uh, I'm not doing board yet. Um, I think I'll, I'll have time to learn all of that. Uh, when I'm no longer WHCA president, come July. Uh huh. Then, then the board lessons begin. I see. Yes, I think that's that's the plan. Uh, you're a gamer, which I had no idea about, and it's generally, I think, considered uh, one of the lowest common denominators of intellectual pursuit. So I was both surprised and relieved to learn that that you are a gamer. Um, yeah, because that makes me feel better about my gaming in a, in a strange way. Tell us a little bit about your gaming. What what do you play, and when did that start? And when do you find time to still keep that up? Uh, so I started I started in uh, high school, I think, um, going down to the arcade, which dates me, obviously. <gasps> Arcades. Pushing pushing quarters into a machine. I played the uh, the my undergraduate college also had a game room, so I played some there. Um, and then you know when I had some disposable income in, uh, in in grad school, not very much, but a little bit, um, I bought myself a uh, a Super Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was actually sort of, it was, it was a way of saving money because if I stayed home and had friends over and we drank beers at home, it was less expensive than at a bar. Um, my favorite game <laughs> at the time, I think was Zom- zombies ate my neighbors, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, and then I just, I never, I never unplugged basically. I never unplugged. I, uh, I got, you know, I, I wanted to, I'm, I'm a PlayStation person. Um, I, I've played and replayed a bunch of different games. I'm replaying, uh, Borderlands two right now. Uh, great, great. That game is a great sense of humor. I was um, going to say that that sense of humor would seem like something that would appeal to you. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and, and I, the, the, the time question is basically, um, you know, basically 10 PM to midnight. Um, I either am, am playing games or I'm watching Netflix. Um, or or something else. Is it something that relaxes your mind more so than... Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I was going to ask you that. I don't know what your day looks like exactly. Maybe we, we can talk about that in a second. But the way I imagine it is 30 egg timers, each one ticking down, and just constantly <laughs> trying to keep all of them running so not all the alarms are going off at the same time about something that needs to be done. And so, And I think life generally has felt to a significant amount of people in the in the United States and probably also to some of your listeners that way for for a while now. How do you shut that off, or is that even shut offable at the end of a day? Hmm. Well, my day my day starts at six thirty in the morning when my alarm goes off. Um, I'm usually um, doing a combination of checking my email and making my first espresso of the day uh, within about fifteen twenty minutes. How many espressos are there in a day? Uh, if you owned stock in the products I use, um, <laughs> you could you could certainly envisage early retirement. Oh, another missed opportunity. Uh, and then it's sort of you know I have a structure, but it's very much at the at the 
at the mercy of breaking news. So I'm usually at, in my office at SiriusXM around uh, a little bit before nine. Um, and then during the day, I'm um, hunting, hunting down show ideas, prepping for interviews, doing interviews, doing WHCA stuff. Um, and then 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern, I'm, I'm on air. Um, and uh, after that, I'll either go out with a, a friend or a source or something like that, or I'll go home. Um, and, uh, and then I'm on my, well, I'll have dinner. I attend to my family as best I can. And then usually they're, they're asleep by about nine 30 or 10, at which point I'm back on my phone and I'm, um, either reading a book or, or playing a game or watching Netflix. We've got about 10 minutes left. Are you okay with some, uh, pooling questions? Sure. Okay. I have, first of all, our friend John asks, have you, and this is a very important question, yeah. Have you ever caught Julie swooning for anything? Think about this one well, because as we are all aware, especially political swooning is not something that she takes kindly to. This is, this is, the, this is the easiest question of all time. Hamid Karzai. Oh, the, Hamid Karzai answered. Oh, my God. Julie, that was much easier than I imagined, by the way. That was the easiest question of all time. I'm so... That was so straightforward. Yes, absolutely. I've seen her swoon. That was so obvious. The capes, the hats. The, the 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 jaunty look. I should have figured that Absolutely. one out. Absolutely, I got it. Okay. Absolutely. So that John answered. Thank you for that. Um, Kristen wanted to know what is your best dad advice. My best dad advice. Oh boy, that's a good one. Well, it depends at what age the kid is, right? Because um, when the kid's a newborn, your basic rule is sleep when you can and pee when you can and don't eat when you can. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when they're a little older, um, it, the advice changes. I think, I think one of the things that I have tried to do with my son that has been rewarding has been to make, make myself kind of a safe space for questions. So never telling him that one of his questions is stupid, you know, never shaming him for a question so that he can come to me and say, Hey, you know, I, I I've encountered this. Can you explain it to me, or can you give me advice for how to managing it, how to manage it? Mm-hmm. And I've I've found that to be very helpful. I think that is really excellent advice. Um, and then I also had a. This is not really a question from Bubbles the Vampire. I have to say, uh, he just wanted you to know that if there if you ever have an opening for an incredibly adoring and enthusiastic cheese segment that he would totally be your man. I, I appreciate that advice, I, that, that <laughs> offer. I believe I believe he has also made that, that offer on social media. <laughs> and and if I ever if I'm ever in a place where I have a budget for a roving cheese correspondent, <laughs> he, uh, he will be he will be my my top choice. Oh, you were included I think in that thread today. They they're discussing an entire an entire uh, cheese pilgrimage at the moment. It's gone yes. it's gone a little bit over the top. Uh, what do you, do you have? Are you as passionate? I mean, being partially French, you have to be at least at least I guess cop to some to some cheese enthusiasm. But are are, are oh, you yeah. at all enthusiastic? Yes. Oh, I'm 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 a, I'm a major cheese eater. Absolutely. Oh, then okay. Um, so that we have to hear really quickly in that case if that's what's going on. Uh, yeah. No, I'm a, I'm a I'm a I'm a big cheese fan. Um, uh, my wife has tried to rein in my fondness for cheese. Understandably, understandably. Why would that be understandable? How, how is that even allowable? Health, health concerns, um, cholesterol, that kind of stuff. Um, but no, I mean, you know, I, I, uh, I, if, if a restaurant offers a cheese plate or dessert, I'm the person who orders the cheese plate. Wow. That is, those are outstanding credentials, Olivier. That is, (laughs) that is, that is serious and good. Can I ask you one last question? Of course. There yeah. was a there was a really fascinating report. I'm not sure how confirmed that is yet this morning, that that Mr. Putin may have paid for the election of the current Italian prime minister. There, you know the connections between Putin and, and uh, right wing movements across the, around the world is has been documented over the last ten years or so. Um, he he had a close relationship with uh, Marine Le Pen, the, the head of the National Front in Paris. In mm-hmm. fact, there were stories about him. Um, uh, lending money to her to her political party, um, so these connections are, are are relatively well known. You know, one of the things that he's doing is he's trying to uh, push sort of a um, a vision of the world that we can call Putinism, I guess, which is this sort of hard right populism, um, demonizing immigration and immigrants, um, and uh, and affirming sort of a 
a pretty dark view of nationalism as well. Um, and and so I'd seen I'd seen other reports about him expressing support for um, for the Lega, but I don't know that I'd seen anything about a secret transaction, which is what's new here. Yeah, that was that was pretty fascinating. Do you, I, that's actually the first time I heard I, I guess the idea of Putinism put that way. Are you at all surprised by how? I mean, for lack of a, I guess you can say he's been pretty successful with that application of Putinism. Yeah, he has. And, you know, a few years ago, uh, I said on my show that I didn't think that we were in a new Cold War because Putinism, unlike communism, could not be exported. And so I was wrong. He exported. Uh, I think that's their best export, actually, at the moment. Well, right. It's like that natural gas or, or oil or whatever. But uh, yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, it's it's it's. He, it's it's not quite right to call it Putinism because these movements all have roots in those countries, right? Mm -hmm. The National Front, when it started growing in the mid 1980s, um, that was not a Putin invention. Um, it was it was rooted in American, sorry, in French political reality. So what he's done though is he has um, he sort of accelerated these trends. Um, but so the reason it's not Putinism is it actually it's very particular to all these different countries. It just hadn't had this kind of strength in a very long time. It's interesting, actually. In Switzerland, it's become a little bit less influential than it had been. But in in Austria and in Germany, it's... Uh, Hungary, Poland, yeah, Hungary, Poland. Uh, Italy. I mean, it's... it's And, you know, UKIP for a while, right? UKIP, I mean, which is sort of now nearly vanished in the polls. I mean, they're at like 3% support. You know, they rose in time to push um, push Brexit, um, and then they faded away again. You know, who is, like Nigel Farage might be speaking at CPAC, but he's not in high demand over in the, in the UK. It seems, though, that who's not speaking at CPAC will be uh, will be Donald Trump, it appears, because he's going to be at his summit. Yeah, that's right. Um, at least that's how it looks. You know, he, he could always do a, he could always phone in or something like that. There are other ways of getting to speak to people. Are, are you going on that trip? I'm not. I, you know, I did about 70% of George W. Bush's travel, and so I'm good. I'm done. I, I don't need to travel again. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So you're just so you're now just setting it up for the White House. Yep, I'm setting it up, and I'm trying to explain what's going on, and and, and then setting it up for the yeah, setting it up for the the WHCA, and um, and I'll try to make sense of it on the other side. But you know, I, I don't need to travel. I, I tell everyone, covering the White House and traveling was awesome when I was 30. It was a little harder when I was 34 and married. 30 and single. Uh, it was harder when I was 34 and married, and it sucked when I was 35 and a kid. <laughs> well, we serious listeners are seriously grateful to keep you in town so we can listen to your show. Today, we're actually going to get to enjoy you twice. Yeah, that's well, two hours. You got two hours of me and Julie together. I know. No, can't wait. Those were always fun. I was really happy to attend the last one. That was that was really fun. And so I, I, I know you guys are going to have a great time. Those are always really fun shows to do, I think. No? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we are. And, you know, I mean, Julie's one of those old friends with whom I've got great chemistry, including on-air chemistry. So they're, they're always fun shows to do. And, and we've got a lot of fun guests, too. So this should be great. Okay. So really looking forward to, to it. Thank you so much for taking this time. And we wish you a, a fun day broadcasting. And we'll talk <laughs> to you again much. soon. <laughs> Thanks. It's my, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.